There's nothing more important or more powerful than staying fresh and staying relevant. People want new, you know, I don't know why. It's just human beings. That's what we want. We want new, exciting, fresh, different, and that keeps us engaged and keeps us coming back. So if we can just do that, you know, it's not only flavor, it's not only collabs, it's not only in stores, like there's just a lot that you have to do with your communication and your marketing and your branding to achieve that. But I think over the years, we've been able to kind of hone in and refine our tactics. And we've found that thankfully innovation, which we love and is in our DNA, is also really attractive to our consumers. You're listening to To Be Blunt, the podcast for cannabis marketers where your host Shada Taravi and her guests are trailblazing the path to marketing, educating, and professionalizing cannabis. Light one up and listen up. Here's your host, Shada Taravi. Hello and welcome back to the To Be Blunt podcast. I'm your host, Shada Tarabi, cannabis business owner and brand marketer. Now, y'all, I'm not going to lie. I'm a bit envious at everyone who got to attend MJ Unpacked and Hall of Flowers these past few weeks. I definitely wish I could have gone, but the reality is I can't be everywhere and honestly, neither can you. I did, however, enjoy watching the festivities through social media from the luxury of my phone this year and heard some interesting thoughts that I wanted to use today's intro to highlight some of the key takeaways from MJ Unpacked specifically as it is a brand-specific cannabis conference. To start, BDSA, which is a cannabis data company that collects consumer insights and cannabis shopper data, kicked off the event sharing some stats highlighting their prediction for federal legalization. Did your ears just perk up? I feel like we all know someone who thinks it is coming sometime in the next year or two, but honestly, we've been hearing that for the past several years and it clearly hasn't happened. And BDSA's data forecast is juicy. It basically said that they do not anticipate change at the federal level in the next five years. If I'm being honest, I'm not shocked, probably more validated, and it just goes to show how glacially slow politics works. No matter how much we want to see legalized weed, it is a process and clearly it's going to take some more time. BDSA also shared that big companies are on the rise. Get this, out of the top 10 brands BDSA tracks, nine of them, nine of the top 10 are MSOs. The COO of BDSA said, though, to not get discouraged that, quote, smaller brands are driving innovation and thus playing an exciting and vital role that shouldn't be underestimated. But again, I'm not entirely shocked at the data. I'm a little rattled because like how much longer is that going to be the trend that these MSOs are continuing to dominate? Obviously they have the network, the funds, the resources, but I'm also hopeful for some movement and opportunity for the small independent brands to survive and thrive as the industry continues to open up. Another interesting takeaway was shared by Wanda James. She is the co-founder and CEO of Simply Pure. She pointed out that anyone selling a federally illegal drug is not, quote, anything proof. 
The other panelists agreed with her assertion that succeeding requires a tremendous amount of business acumen and constant vigilance due to ever-changing regulations and tax structures, but that business skills alone are not enough. A successful cannabis company needs to have both a distinct identity and a true purpose. This thought was validated then by the CRO of Wanna Brands, and he said, quote, the ones who win are going to be the ones that find their identity. So I just want you to kind of, you know, think about that. Think about your own brand, your business, and what your identity is, what your value proposition is, who your target consumer is, and just kind of keep thinking through that as We, of course, get through the intro and get into today's episode. And then another key quote that was shared was from the COO of Juicy Holdings. And I like this one. It said, quote, if you have a piano but don't have a great piano player, then it doesn't work. Many people are missing out on the functionalities of these platforms because they don't have good players. And I think that just further emphasizes the importance of understanding your brand and then execution, right? Having the right people in place to help you execute towards your goals. So if you attended, what was your favorite takeaway? And if you didn't attend, let me know by reaching out on social media at to be blunt pod and at the shade of what your favorite takeaway was from the highlights that I shared, or maybe from what you saw on social media. I think just to reiterate that last quote is so important to again, think, do you have the right people in the right positions to execute? Which leads me to today's guest, the co-founder of Kiva, Christy Palmer, who has been a cannabis operator since 2010 in the California cannabis market. Kiva has won over 20 Best Edibles and Best Edibles Producer Awards for their portfolio of Kiva and Terra Chocolates. They also have Petra Mints, Camino Gummies, and Lost Farm Gummies and Chews. And they are the number one edible brand in California, which is the largest cannabis market in the world. A question I asked Christy was about their decision to give these products sub-brands and why they chose that direction versus just having them nested under Kiva. And so you'll just have to keep listening to hear how she answered that. And their products are now manufactured and sold in Arizona, Nevada, Michigan, Illinois, Ohio, Oklahoma, Massachusetts, Hawaii, and most recently they went international. They are also in Canada. They have won many prestigious Clio awards for their marketing and advertising excellence in the cannabis industry. And then in 2017, the Kiva team actually launched Kiva Sales and Service to both distribute and curate best-in-class cannabis brands to California retailers. And their portfolio now includes industry leaders like Jetty Extracts and Autumn Brands, Pacific Stone, who we've had on the podcast, Can also had on the podcast, great brands in another portfolio. So just to highlight a few. And Kiva employs more than 400 people. Remember, we're talking about building and executing your team, where Christy and her team have their sights set on opening even more markets through manufacturing partnerships while continuing to release innovative new products that not only utilize cutting edge technologies, but continue to expand on the untapped potentials of cannabis. This was honestly such a treat of a discussion. Christy is so passionate and knowledgeable, and I've just been a fan of Kiva for many years, so it was exciting to have her on the podcast and learn from her journey of building and bringing Kiva and their sub-brands to market. So you know the drill. Please join me by lighting one up, and let's welcome Christy to the show. 
My name is Christy Palmer, and I'm a co-founder at Kiva Confections. Kiva was started in 2010 with a mission to create a better edible product for the California medical cannabis patient at that time. I don't have a background in cannabis or food. <laughs> I certainly do now, but I got my formal education in photography school. And that's actually where I met my husband, who is a co-founder with me for Kiva, and he's also the CEO. So yeah, so we met photography school, totally different market, which you do see a lot of people in cannabis who, you know, they don't, you, you do see some like OGs and people who've had years and years and years of experience, but the primary person now in cannabis doesn't have, you know, their upbringing is in cannabis. And that was the case for us as well. But photography school, I think, really primed us for learning how to make things that are beautiful, learning how to communicate with consumers, right? Photography, we were both commercial photography majors. And so that teaches you like what speaks to people and what hits that emotional cord for them. And so that background, I think you might not kind of immediately attribute that to success in the cannabis market, but for products, it really taught us a lot about how to present a product. So yeah, you know, fast forward from 2010 to 2022, Kiva's 12 years old. I will be 12 at the end of this year. And we're now in, oh my gosh, like nine markets outside of California, Canada. We have about 360 employees as of date. And then let's see what else product lines were in chocolate chocolate bars, chocolate covered centers like espresso beans. We have a mint, we have gummies and chews, fruit chews, kind of like a Starburst consistency and lots more things to come. So yeah, that's the long and short of it. <laughs> no, that is super, like I said, before we started recording, I think it's so fun to learn people's backgrounds because the industry is very dynamic and obviously we don't really have a roadmap of people who are like, I've come from, you know, this cannabis job and that cannabis job and now I want to start a company. It really is a lot of people coming from other industries, other passions, other backgrounds and trying to apply it into the industry. And you've built a beautiful brand. I'm just always so like I'm drooling constantly when I see your products, when I get to enjoy your products, when I visit states where you were sold in. And so when the opportunity came up to get to connect with you, you know, IRL to the extent that virtual allows for us to be face to face, I was like, oh my God, I'm so excited because your brand is just so massive in the sense of like you cover a lot of different types of products. I have a lot of questions that I was curious to like pick your brain apart, which I'll get to, but tease now of just how you come up with some of the different names and like how you're structuring these products versus I think some businesses, you know, they have their brand name and then they're like, this is my gummy product. This is my chocolate product. You've actually named your different sub brands. So I thought that was really fascinating. But before we get into some of the marketing stuff, I really want to go a little bit back to the beginning. You mentioned you started the brand with your husband, which, you know, my audience knows that I am in a family, you know, CBD business here in Texas and family is both the best, you know, most supportive environment to, you know, be an entrepreneur and also the most chaotic. And so... On one end, I'm curious, you know, what was it like kind of, you know, putting your heads together and being like, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to start a brand together. It sounds like it's obviously been successful since you've managed to stay in business together throughout the tenure of the, the business, but also wanted to kind of, you know, hone in a little bit on, I was reading about your story and how you, you really just like saw some great chocolate products, non-dosed in the market, and then thought, oh, we should dose these and start our own brand. And I just want to know kind of what was that 
you know, life cycle from going from, okay, we see chocolate in the marketplace. We're not chocolatiers, but we're going to go ahead and put our heads together and make something. Like how much has the product changed since that original recipe or those original recipes? And kind of at what point in the, you know, duration of the brand was it, you know, the first four years you were using kind of those same ingredients? Was it the first, you know, month? And then you're like, okay, we got to like bring in people who are more experts on these, you know, types of, of ingredients and just like the the nature of chocolate and confections. And so that's where I would love to kind of learn a little bit more because obviously edibles is a huge market share in our industry. And there are a, little, a lot of different ways people are bringing these products to market. And so just really curious from your perspective with your brand, just knowing how how big your brand has become. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Oh my gosh. So much there to address. I have to say the aha moment kind of came from way back before chocolate was on the mind. We were cultivating in the garden shed at the house I grew up in here in the Bay Area, San Leandro. And, you know, like to cultivate, you got to like know what you're doing, especially indoors. And we were still learning. (laughs) So yeah, that got us into the dispensaries. We thought maybe we'll start a dispensary. So we went into, Scott was looking for real estate, stumbled into a a chocolate shop in Berkeley and was like, yes, we're going to make edibles. Came home to me and was like, we're going to make edibles. And I was like, no, we can't. Like, you know, I just, my mind instantly went to that, like, you know, that pot brownie, that person that is like, you know, selling those that just I just didn't have a positive picture in my mind about what edibles were I had the worst picture which is I think an accurate (laughs) description of what the edibles were like at that time so yeah aha moment was Scott went to that shop and was like we're gonna do it and then he was like you know what we're gonna do it not in the way that you're picturing but better right it's gonna be beautiful delicious professionally packaged labeled and you know this is about 2009, maybe like late 2008, somewhere right in there. Anyway, yeah, it was going to have to be professional and done in a way that had never really been done before. And that was going to require testing. And testing was brand new back then. Like Steep Hill Labs was one of the first labs to open up here in California in the Bay Area. And so we started working with them to test our extraction. We were like, how are we going to do this? We're going to test every single extract for THC potency. That way we know, you know, how potent is our starting material. And then we will have to fluctuate that formulation a little bit more more extract, little less extract, depending on the THC content of that unique batch. So that's what we did. We started with an oil to your kind of question and your point about how has the formulation changed. We started making a, what is today recognized as crude oil. So it is a ethanol extraction. It just takes everything out of the plant, right? All, all the stuff. And it looks gross. (laughs) It looks crude. (laughs) It's not that beautiful golden oil that you get after you continue to process the oil, but we were able to do that in the garage at that time. So Scott being the kind of natural born self-trained engineer that he is, he found the extraction equipment and started doing this crude extraction in the garage. But with that crude oil, you get all these flavors, you get off flavors, you get good flavors of the cannabis. And so that worked for us for like about a month or two. And then we got a batch of oil that 
it didn't taste so good, but we were really tight for time. We had customers calling. It was like, a you know, the expectations were high and we were pretty green and still naive and novices at that time for sure. And so we made product with that oil that was off and we packaged it up and we delivered it to this store in Berkeley. And that store called like two days later and they were like, every single chocolate bar that we've sold has been returned. And we would like you guys to come pick up your product and nope, we don't need extra, you know, we don't want replacement product. Cause that was my first thing. Like, oh yeah, you know, I know that batch wasn't great, but let me give you a better one. They were like, uh-uh, come here. We'll take our money back and, you know, and good luck to you. So it took us about five years to get that customer back. Hugely important lesson there that we learned was that nothing goes out the door unless it's perfect, right? It has to taste good. It has to be, has to check all the boxes. Otherwise, it, it's a lot harder to do damage control once you've released that product than it is to fix those problems when that product is still in your hands. So at that point, we went, okay, oil isn't reliable, right? Sometimes it tastes good, sometimes it doesn't. So it was at that point that we switched to cold water hash. And really since then, the formulation at its core hasn't changed. We've gone cold water hash and really never looked back. We have over the years tested like, okay, do people like CO2? Can they tell if CO2, the effect is better? Do people like, you know, I don't know what other extraction method was trendy or popular at the time. And based on consumer feedback, you know, cold water extract is the best match for the chocolate bars. So that's what we've always gone with. And we've really tried to hold true to those principles. Our core values and our kind of company's core values have grown up and matured over time, but we still maintain a brand that is professional, trustworthy, natural, information forward, right? That panel on the chocolate bar has to give you all the exact information that you need to make a, a responsible decision with your cannabis experience. So yes, the formulation has primarily maintained a very similar feel and yeah, from almost from day one. No, that's great to understand. I appreciate you sharing that little like, you know, brief snippet of the journey for us. And I want to you know, kind of revisit, you were talking about getting this consumer feedback, which I think is so important, obviously, to continue to just make sure that you are delivering what your customers are actually wanting. But so much of the challenge with cannabis brands is like missing that link to direct to consumer, right? Because of the model for how you sell your products through dispensaries. And so I'm just curious how you approach getting that consumer feedback. Obviously, you know, presently your brand is very well recognized and I'm sure you have no problems like today going to Instagram or your website driving people to, you know, want to subscribe and give you their, their information so you can have that direct line of communication. But kind of looking at those early years, let's say those first five years where you're really bringing your product to market, you're trying to build your brand name, you're trying to build that feedback loop. What are some of the activities and maybe ways that you found success or maybe not success with trying to get in touch with your your target demographic and your customer base for this feedback? Yeah, great, great point. Getting consumer feedback is very challenging for a cannabis company, especially a wholesale cannabis company, because we don't have a retail store, right? So we're not directly interfacing with the consumer on a regular day-to-day -day basis. So yeah, in the early days, we did a lot of sample events was what we used to call them back then because we could actually give out free samples. 
Those were the days, right? (laughs) Yeah, those are long gone. But yeah, so that got us in the stores and talking to consumers. And I think too, also talking to your retailers because they do collect that information. And two examples jumped to mind of like of retailers slash consumer feedback that we were able to act on. One of them was very early days. We didn't provide instructions for use. We just were like, you know, this is our product. It's 60 milligrams of THC or 180. And it's kind of the unspoken that you figure out what works for you. Like, we're not a doctor. We don't give advice on how much to take. But one of our retailers was like, you know, this is a huge point of difficulty for the retailer because they get people that walk in and say, what should I do? How much should I eat? And they have to explain over and over and over to their consumers how much to start with. And they're like, if you could just give us a starting place, you know, that would be really awesome. So we started including a little insert in, we were just chocolate bars at that time. So we started including an insert that gave instructions, how long to wait, you know, 90 minutes to two hours, start with five or 15 milligrams. And I forget exactly how much we recommended at that time. But yeah, that was, you know, probably like 10 years ago, honestly, before any kind of hint of state regulation. And the other kind of great piece of feedback that led to an amazingly innovative product for us at the time was, you know, our chocolate bar was long and thin, like six inches long, two inches wide, and it was four squares. And so you'd have to take it out of the bag. You'd have to break a piece off with your fingers and then try to put all the pieces back in the bag and roll it up, you know, stuff it in there for next time. And and then it spills out all over in your pantry, whatever. So people are like, you know, can you just with their fingers, can you just make like one square, you know, one piece, like a Ghirardelli square? And so we're like, okay, yeah, that sounds good. So we started working on that. But when people do that with their little pincher fingers, you know, that got the wheels turning and Scott had another aha moment. You're probably sensing a theme here with him. And uh, that, that led us to the terabytes. And we wanted one piece that you could take the lid off, take out your five milligrams, pop that in your mouth, put the lid back on, job done, right? No breaking up or, you know, little crumbs all over the place. And so we did both of those things. We listened to the feedback, came out with the one square, and then also created the terabytes and dual tracked those. And the terabytes were wildly successful in comparison to the single square. The single square like never really took off, but terabytes were so much more appealing to the consumer. So I think listening to feedback, but then also reinterpreting it because you don't want to make your consumer work too hard. And that's what was happening with the squares where they just weren't quite hitting the mark. The ease and the convenience of the terabytes just blew the squares out of the water. So no, that's a great also note on just obviously like using the customer feedback also to inform innovation and trying to understand how customers are actually using your products. We on our side from a CBD perspective, we have a physical brick and mortar, a dispensary, if you will, here in Austin. And this conversation comes up a lot in some of the e-commerce circles I'm in, which I think e-commerce kind of maybe mirrors a little bit of what the wholesale model is for cannabis brands in legal markets where you are trying to sell through a channel, but you don't actually get to talk to that customer. And so being able to sit in retail and like listen to how people are asking questions or what are new cannabinoids they're asking for or what's the feedback on certain ways that they've been interacting with products or packaging has just been super invaluable for us as a brand. And so it's something that I always try to like, you know, highlight with other 
conversations and people just in general, like maybe you don't have an opportunity to physically go to a pop-up in a location or you don't own your own location, but yeah, how do you get in front of the consumer to really start to understand? You might think this is the best packaging. This is the best way to portray the product. These are the best ingredients, the best taste. And then someone else tries it and they're like, oh, have you thought about this? And you're like, no, I actually haven't, but that's a great idea. So how do you, you know, facilitate those conversations? I think is super important for our industry where you have this really dynamic evolving marketplace of advanced users and consumers. Like I'll put myself in that category. I appreciate innovation, but I'm also just very old school of like, yeah, I'll ask questions later and figure out the dose, but I will just eat the piece of chocolate and like not think about it until I'm maybe too high or not high enough versus maybe a new consumer who's like, oh my gosh, now I have this, you know, drug bar of chocolate. And now how do I manage it? How do, like, to your point, how do I break it apart? How do I dose myself? What's the right portion control and things like that? And so we as an industry have to kind of facilitate both ends of those conversations to, you know, match those consumers in the marketplace. And, and it sounds like your brand has found, you know, the right mix to speak to kind of both of those. And so I do want to get into now, you know, kind of the breadth of products that you're offering which to my earlier question, you know, I thought it was just so interesting. I see perhaps, you know, some other brands and certainly non-cannabis brands who do that where they have sub-brands and maybe I'm not using the particular correct language. So I would love for you to correct me, but you have products that are named Terra, you know, Camino, Lost Farm, Petra, and they're all under the Kiva Confections, you know, kind of banner brand, but what was the intention for launching them with their own names versus this is our gummy and this is our, you know, microdose and this is our chocolate. And what what was kind of like the thought process behind pursuing that route versus just the more generic, this is the type of product that we're offering. Yep, totally. So I think the early, early days, it was Kiva Bar and then out came terabytes and terabytes were that's probably the almost like kind of the happy accident or the most experimental part of the strategy because it was chocolate and chocolate, right? Both of those are chocolate. The consistency was there. The quality was there. But I think the biggest couple of reasons that stand out for changing that was form factor. So we wanted to go to a different format. So that's an opportunity to do a different brand, right? Also consumer feedback. Again, people were like, oh, I heard you guys used it. This is the silliest. Rumors are so funny, but I heard you guys use like a female marketing company to like consult with, to come up with your packaging for the Kiva bar to make it like, you know, especially attractive to women. And this is a time when men dominated the cannabis industry, like, you know, three to one five to one. So we were like, well, no, you know, no, we didn't do anything like that. But the rumors existed and the feedback was there, right? Like your products appeal maybe too much to women and they are pushing men out or men are skipping over them because they look too feminine perhaps. So we thought, okay, let's come out with a product that is a little more bold, a little more maybe masculine in its presentation and its font choices. So that's what we did with Tara. We went back and forth. We're going, okay, is this how we're going to do it? Does it make sense? And, you know, it's it was hard to make that decision. Looking, you know, fast forward to now, what that strategy has allowed us to do 
is create products that are tailored for different consumers without offending, pushing out, making ourselves irrelevant to another consumer set. So your chocolate person is like, you know, okay, I'm going to, it's a decadent time or I'm going to a dinner party. I'm going to bring my chocolate bar with me and I'm going to share it with all my friends and I might pair it with wine. Your mint is like, I'm going to the football game. I only want this amount, you know, I'm out in public or I'm taking my kids to the park. Like, you know, there's no wiggle room here. There is an exact amount. That's what I want. And so the mint consumer might be gravitating towards that kind of effect. Then Lost Farm. Lost Farm is their most recent brand launch. And Lost Farm and Petra, like, couldn't be further apart on kind of the brand scale. Petra's, you know, that little dose for the new consumer or the sensitive consumer. Lost Farm is all about the taste of the plant and the adventure of experimenting with the strain. And, you know, can you taste the difference? Can you detect the difference in effect? Because that's a strain specific live resin product. So that is like, you know, for the connoisseur. So it's downsides of doing that strategy are it's expensive, right? You show up to a trade show and you're like, okay, we're Kiva, we're Petra, we're Camino, we're Lost Farm, and we're Terra. So you have to come out with a product that has a great reason to exist on its own. You know, it can't just be another chocolate bar by Kiva. This time it's sugar-free. Let's make it a new brand. Like, no, what's the catch? What's the sticky point? Um, or the appeal to the consumer. So we've chose this kind of like house of brands approach rather than a branded house. Just gives us flexibility, but we definitely look for economies of scale and reasons to become more efficient. Lost Farm does a good job of that again, because for the very first time in our product lineup, the same brand has two different categories of products. So Lost Farm has a gummy and a fruit chew. So two different formats under the same house, but they accomplish the same thing for the consumer, both live resin, both strain specific, similar artwork, similar flavor profiles, just different format. So yeah, there's a lot there, but no, that that helps frame it up because again, there's not a right or wrong way to obviously do it. It's just what makes the most sense for your brand and kind of your, you know, vision and strategy for how you want to roll it out. quick break to say thank you to Restart CBD for sponsoring this podcast. Restart CBD is a brand my sisters and I founded in our hometown in Austin, Texas. We operate a retail location as well as an e-commerce store and you can browse our wide range of CBD products at restartcbd.com. Again, thank you to Restart for allowing me the time and resources to put on To Be Blunt. I hope you'll check them out for your CBD needs. Let's go back to the episode. With that said, knowing that you are in multiple markets, you're now in Canada as well. How do you like, I guess, approach and the back of my mind, obviously, I also know, and maybe you and listeners can understand this too. Not every dispensary is going to purchase the breadth of your SKUs. So like, how do you navigate that to where this product is more popular in this state? And so then you want to test that product in the new state you're going to, but then you're like, I also have these other products. And so when you're, you know, doing, and I'd also be curious how you kind of look at multi-state operations. Is it 
you taking your own, you know, facility and implementing it? Or are you sending like SOPs over? And so knowing that one facility that maybe is set up to do gummies, are they also doing chocolates? And so that might, you know, be a limiting factor for you to take your full product set into these new markets. But obviously kind of like a a large question to unpack, but just really curious. People, I think, want to see their products out in front of more consumers and just the path to get there, even for big brand names that I've discovered from this podcast is it's obviously very challenging even for big brands to be like, yes, and I have these, you know, six or seven different product lines and do you want all of them? And so whether it's a new state or just another dispensary, it's not always as like, yep, come on right in. Here's, you know, your shelf space and we're going to help, you know, promote your product to our consumers and target base. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Distribution is a beast in cannabis for sure. You're thinking about both like in your native state. So in California, Kiva actually also, we have our own distribution company. So we distribute not only our own products, but products for other like-minded kind of brands that have similar philosophy, are leaders in their category. And what that does is that helps us become a better service provider to our retailers, right? Now they have to make fewer phone calls to get their Jetty vape pens, to get their Pacific Stone, to get can, their beverage. You know, they only have to call Kiva Sales and Service. They no longer have to call, you know, 13 or 15 different brands. So it, it creates a better service model for the retailer, which then makes you stickier to the retailer, right? Makes It creates a stronger relationship and makes you guys kind of work a little bit better, makes you more important to your retailer as well. But yeah, getting every single SKU that Kiva has on every single shelf, like, no, I don't think. <laughs> is that is there any place that sells every SKU that you offer? Maybe not flavors, but obviously just like one of each of the types of products. I believe it's in the single digit percentage. Oh, okay. When I go, what? Wow, it's surprising. So, but yeah, but I think you need to be realistic about your whole product line, right? And you can't be everything to everyone. And, you know, you've got your connoisseur edible and your super beginner edible. And so your store that's located in a neighborhood, you know, full of soccer moms, they might not want your connoisseur product or vice versa, right? A budget conscious consumer isn't going to want your most expensive product. They're going to look for THC per dollar. So, you know, there's so many things that go into distribution, but distribution is so important. Cannot stress that enough. So we've continued to invest over the years in our distribution company, in our sales force and our team and our, our service model and the relationships that we have with our dispensaries here in California. And then to your question, your point about wanting all of your SKUs out of state as well. So, you know, we used to lead with chocolate when we went into other states. That's like, you know, our flagship. But as the market and the consumer changes, chocolate is no longer, you know, the big guy on campus. Now it is gummy, like gummy is king. So now we lead with gummy. And Lost Farm is our most innovative and most unique product. So we do our best to how can we lead with Lost Farm? Because competitively, it's more challenging for a competitor to catch up with Lost Farm, but also on the manufacturing side, it's more difficult to, to make. The equipment is more expensive and the, the extraction types are more difficult to procure. 
you know, in a state like Arizona, where cultivation doesn't run as deep as it does here in California. So out-of-state expansion, holy moly, that is, you know, you can't unfortunately ship across state lines, you know, maybe someday in the future. But right now, every product that you make has to be made in that state, distributed only in that state. So we've chosen a a licensing model primarily for our out-of-state expansion efforts. So you got to go, you know, find a partner. You have to date and see if that person, you know, are they marriage material? Are they going to do the best job of stewarding our brand into another state? You know, do they believe in quality? Are we aligned in, in what we find to be important? So once you kind of vet out the, the philosophical backgrounds of people and their business models, you know, is there enough weed in that state <laughs> to support an edible? Are edibles allowed in that state? That's a big one. What are packaging regulations like, right? You go to Canada, it's 10 milligrams per piece and the most boring package you've ever seen, right? You could pick a color so you can be blue and then you can have a logo, which is smaller than the warning, right? So like the first thing the consumer sees is like warning, scary cannabis. And you have hardly any channels in which to communicate with them. Like this is low dose. This is all natural. This is, you know, includes terpenes that create a tailored effect that, you know, all the communication that's required to connect with the consumer in a a place like Canada that is not on the packaging. That is the kind of stuff that I always appreciate learning about because I just find that there's just like so much to swim through. And obviously you don't fully grasp it until you're either listening to an episode like this and the guest is like, oh yeah, I've been there, done that. And this is what I learned. Or you're trying to actually take your product into that market. And I've, you know, unfortunately probably been, you know, in conversations where it's like, hey, we tried to go into this market and we realized it was actually really difficult for this, that, and the other reason. And so the idea and the glamour of, you know, licensing deals in particular being, I don't want to say easier, obviously, but it doesn't, you know, require you to actually go set up operations in that state. To your point, maybe it is a little bit more difficult because you do have to find the right partner who is going to be the best you know, expression of your brand operating in that state. But there's so many different, as you were, you know, alluding to from packaging and labeling and ingredients and just supply chain in general, it's obviously a big, bigger hill for people to kind of, you know, kind of get over. And that is, you know, again, the glamorous thing I think people want is multi-state operations in the industry, just kind of, you know, plant my flag in and now I'm here, but nobody really addresses the I'm here, but, you know, am I succeeding or or what are the setbacks because of me going into this new market that I'm now having to adopt? So knowing that you have this breadth of products and sub brands and you're operating in multiple states, I do want to talk a little bit about the marketing side of things from a creative perspective, knowing your background, being in commercial photography, you and your husband's and the influence, obviously, from I'm sure that that side of the industry of just like looking at things from a placement perspective, you know, what is complementary? How do things look from, you know, a shelf perspective to a digital perspective to a in-hand perspective is all kind of, you know, nuanced. I think that's kind of like the sweet spot. I think about being a marketer, we spend so much time and money and efforts making it look easy. And like, it was just, oh, we just look this good. Like, oh, we just rolled out of bed and this is what our packaging looks like. And you're like, no, it actually took me, you know, 
months and years and days and hours to like get the logo and the label and the colors to match just right. And then you go to a new state and they're like, we don't want your fucking packaging. So try again. So how does that kind of, you know, influence what you're doing? And I'd love to also get a little bit of a snapshot of, you know, you mentioned how many employees you're at presently. You've been in business, you know, for let's say the past like decade plus. Marketing to me is such a key component, but I'm assuming with your background in photography, marketing is maybe a little bit more familiar for you. And a question I get asked a lot is like, you know, at what point do you hire a marketing team? And I, for our business, my sisters and I, we're very marketing forward again. So I've not really hired marketing. I've now, and, you know, kind of our, we're a four-year-old business. I would say, you know, three years in, we hired an email marketing agency. I'm not an email marketer. That's their job. They're experts. Like, let's bring in people who are capable of doing that. Designers. I'm not a designer. I love Canva, but like, let me hire someone who is like great at making design happen. So knowing, you know, you have built this beautiful, aesthetically pleasing house of brands. At what point did you like, say, okay, we're going to make our first marketing hire. And what percentage of your employees is marketing? And how do you manage all these brands? And also to tack on more questions, you know, what are the channels that you find the most successful? Yep. Yep. So much there. It's marketing in cannabis is unlike a lot of other channels or product types and categories for marketing right? Like first Facebook and Instagram, like Instagram doesn't want you to do it. Like Instagram doesn't want you. <laughs> so you have to try to follow the rules and not get your social media accounts shut down or banned or paused or whatever it is. In fact, I just was hearing that cookies, like I know a huge brand is like on suspension on Twitter, which is like a, such a lifestyle brand. And so, you know, it's still happening, those types of activities. So, you know, I think to start with like the marketing team. So we've always kind of led the design direction. That's another area. Scott is a like brilliant storyteller and just extremely dedicated to getting the brand just right and clearly defining its reason to exist. So a lot of that design direction and that heart and passion has come from us internally. And we have done, we've made like, I feel like every mistake in the book, <laughs> we've done all the stuff wrong over the years. It used to be our claim to fame that we'd like, okay, we want to have a new flavor or a new product or new something. And we'd start first with the packaging. Okay, let's go get the packaging designed. And then you go, oh, wait, oops, actually, we can't get that ingredient in that. We can't make a s'mores bar. You know, this is like 10 years ago. We can't make a s'mores bar. Okay, well, we already made the packaging. So let's just put it on the shelf for maybe a few more years and see if we get it. So yeah, we've learned a lot of lessons along the way. But the team has always, we've always had a out of house, call it a like brand design team that we've worked with. And that has shifted over the years in terms of like who is doing it or what group is doing it. But we're quite persnickety and quite picky about who that is and how that work comes to life. Yeah. So instead of going to a, a branding company and saying, hey, we want a brand, you know, we'll see you later. Let us know what happens in two weeks. Send us over the designs. We'll pick one that's pretty. It's so much more, you know, Scott puts together now like a mood board kind of early on, like they, these are the expectations or these are the thoughts that are in my mind. Put them down on 
you know, do some Pinteresting and put those into like a full on deck that talks about the story and the visual kind of cues. And then that goes over to the design firm. They come back, but we've gone back and gone, okay, now all the things that you just presented, none of them are resonating. Let's just, you know, let's just put this whole project on the back burner. <laughs> We've done that many times. So that part of the process is still primarily, you know, it's shared in that way. Our very first marketing hire was a director of marketing who for us at the time did like all the tactical stuff, posters, table tents. We spruced up and redid the website. We did brand ambassador events in store. We kind of tidied up that table. We hired brand ambassadors. That was very like, let's pump out materials into the store. Since then, our team has grown to, oh my gosh, just marketing team. God, we probably have like eight. 10, 12, somewhere in there with some in-house design help, lots of in-house like communications and design direction, like creative direction in-house, email and social. That stuff is led and directed in-house, but then executed out of house. But we're commenting and getting back to people's responses on social, that's in-house. So that team has certainly grown. And we've, like I said, we've made mistakes in those regards too, or we've shifted the strategy. We want this type of job done out of house. And then you start doing it. And then you look at the bill and you go, okay, maybe we could do that. (laughs) That's missed done in-house. And then you bring that person in-house and you go, oh, you know what? Actually, there's no one here to train that person. So we're going to make out a house. So, you know, back and forth, back and forth. It just sort of depends on everything, your expertise and, you know, the, the wind at the moment. So yeah. And the successful channels, that question and kind of that point, you know, you can spend as much money on marketing as you want. You can buy a Super Bowl ad (laughs) or you could print a t-shirt. Like you can do, you could spend as much money as you want, but measuring success is like the age old marketing test, right? The finance guys are always like, which marketing initiative made the best return? And I think that takes a lot of time to figure out and a lot of measuring and monitoring and like really refining your channels. So what we have found, you know, has been the in-store marketing like can't be beat at this point in time for a company our size and for the market the way that it is. You know, you can do billboards and we have, but billboards are expensive, hard to track and require a breadth of retail for people to drive into, right? They see your billboard on the freeway. You want them to be able to pull over and go to a store. That isn't so simple in California, at least really in most states, to be honest. It's, you know, you can't just drive into a grocery store and buy the beer or buy the chips. You have to go to a dispensary. You have to be 21. You got to Google cannabis dispensary and then find one that's close to you. And then there's a security guard. You know, the experience leaves a lot of just kind of discomfort for the consumer. So we capture the attention of the consumer mostly once they're already in the store. But, you know, that strategy, we still do online marketing. We still do a DTC platform. So, you know, it's definitely fluid and always changing. Yeah, I think one of the things you highlighted, which gave me at least just like, you know, a little sigh of relief, which is misery loves company, right? And so to hear just the amount of effort and energy it takes on both sides, whether you do it in-house or you, you outsource it, right? And so people are always looking for the magic 
what do I do? What should I do? Who should I hire? Is it me? Do I need to learn these skills? Like I get asked a lot, you know, well, do I need to learn TikTok and, and Instagram and, and to make these reels? And I'm like, you don't. But if you hire someone to your point, you need to also, if you want it to be executed in the way that reflects your brand the best, in my opinion, and it's shared by y'all as well, you need to have leadership guiding that person who is making content or doing that marketing function, really anything business related, obviously that you're outsourcing, but the more that you are telling them explicitly what to do. So I love to hear that Scott's obviously like, no, this is the mood board. It's not just, yeah, here's some pretty pictures and this is like the brand we want to make and here's our product, surprise us. It's, this is what I want and I need you to get as close to what is inside my brain and this is the way that I'm going to show you inside my brain, which is a challenge sometimes because I do find, and you articulated it so well as well, right? Like, okay, I'm going to outsource this, but then I'm realizing I'm spending so much time having to educate them. And I'm like, should I just do it myself anyways? And then it's this constant cycle. And so there's not a right or wrong thing, you know, kind of strategy to go about, but it's really just trying to, I guess, share these stories so that people can, you know, be inspired and also feel comforted of like, oh, okay, I'm, you know, kind of like on the right track. And then your point about the billboards is really fascinating to me too, just given the nature of how industries and regulated markets obviously are like pushing consumers. It is really crazy to think like you could, and I have seen, especially, you know, being in California over the years, people take out big advertisements. And then as a consumer, you're left kind of like, where do I go from here? And if you were me, maybe, you know, this is a dispensary I can go to. But even then, going back to our earlier conversation, and I always feel like I some of my episodes have reiterated the same sentiment, but there's a brand I love in Colorado and they released a new SKU. And so if they had a billboard that was like, hey, this is our brand. And then I'm thinking, okay, great. I'm going to go to this dispensary. And I go to that dispensary and that particular SKU isn't there. That's the whole purpose I went to the freaking dispensary. It's, you know what I mean? So it's a difficult kind of, you know, way to market your new products when you are finding success being like, okay, hey, when you come to the dispensary, how about you see us and see what we have and offer here and investing in those marketing channels as well. So again, no right or wrong, but just, you know, trying to learn from people who have come and done it before us. But I wanted to ask a follow-up question because I was going through social media and I think collaborations comes up, you know, a lot on the podcast as well. And just in general, I think it's such a a fun and creative way to kind of bridge that gap for consumers also to have, you know, the touch points of like, oh, I'm seeing your product over here with this other business or your brand being talked about. And so I saw St. John, he's a musical artist. I don't know if you've done other musical artist collaborations. And I would love to just learn like, what is the breadth of the relationship with him? Kind of what is the expectation of y'all bringing him on board of him kind of like partnering with you as a brand? And are there any other kind of, you know, creative marketing channels that you've kind of like leaned into over the years as the industry has gotten more, I'm going to say more competitive because I do feel like there's more opportunities to get into the industry today, but maybe it's not as competitive as it was when you first were starting because it was like a fight to get market share. So I'm curious, you know, kind of how you approach that kind of like filter of of setting your brain apart, not com competition, competition, but obviously consumers picking your products. Like that's the whole goal. We want to have customers put our products in the cart. And so creatively, how do we go champion that message? And, and obviously partnerships with celebrities is a great win, usually for both parties. So I'm curious how you've kind of leaned into that. Yeah. 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 The St. John collab has been so much fun. I bet. <laughs> he is incredible. And he was a Kiva fan. 
prior to the collaboration. So like, you know, it was a kind of a match made in heaven. He came to us and that has been like the most authentic way to connect with a celebrity. There's so many celebrity brands and that doesn't guarantee your success by any stretch of the imagination. And I think the worst thing that can happen if you do a celebrity like collaboration is that people are like, and they can see through it right? Like what does this person and that product have to do with each other? So this has felt really great and been successful. I think because it starts from a place of authenticity. Also, he chose the strains, worked with our team to like figure out what strains can we source that will work for the product. He led the art and yeah, we've done two product releases now. So, so fun, so rewarding, gets everybody jazzed. The other one that is really interesting and is different is very different from the St. John collab is we're doing a new one with Huff, the skate brand, and they have come to be recognized by cannabis folks because of their cannabis socks, right? You've seen them, you go online, they'll- I own them. Yes, they're everywhere. They're amazing. Like buy them for your friends for Christmas because they're like the greatest stocking stuffer ever. And so that collab is going to be so fun. We're doing a Lost Farm flavor with Huff. And then we're doing a whole like merchandise or a merch release. So the Lost Farm Huff products are merchandise, clothing products are going to be in Zoomy stores, like online. You know, you'll be able to find those in regular channels and never regular channels, non-cannabis channels. And every, like that's never happened before for Kiva. We struggle so much. How do we get seen by consumers in a way that's economical, right? Not the billboard, but with merchandise is a much more efficient way. It makes more sense and it serves the consumer. It creates something super cool that everyone's excited about and that's something that people actually really want in stores and channels that we normally can't appear in. So such a huge opportunity. You know, we're just about to release that. So it's still quite experimental. The proof will be in the pudding, but really, really exciting. And what that does, I think, for competition is you stay fresh and there's nothing more important or more powerful than staying fresh and staying relevant. People want new, you know, I don't know why. It's just human beings. That's what we want. We want new, exciting, fresh, different. And that keeps us engaged and keeps us coming back. So if we can just do that, you know, it's not only flavor. It's not only collabs. It's not only in stores. Like there's just a lot that you have to do with your communication and your marketing and your branding to achieve that. But I think over the years, we've been able to kind of hone in and refine our tactics. And we found that thankfully innovation, which we love and is in our DNA, is also really attractive to our consumers. No, that's a huge opportunity. I'm super excited to see that merch collab with Huff come out. I think you touched on it with the comment about St. John as well, the authenticity component. And I think that is a question that comes up a lot too. You know, it's, I want to do collaborations. How do I approach these brands? And Yes, there's totally like be proactive and and outreach and make a short list of people that you want to do business with. But 
it is nice when it's coming to you and they're recognizing and they're saying like, hey, I'm a fan of your product. And so this naturally makes sense versus trying to prematurely kind of lean into collaborations, maybe when your brand isn't ready or it doesn't, you know, seem as authentic as it could be with it maybe being a different person, partner, timing, product, et cetera. So I feel like I could just keep talking to you. I'm so, like I said in the beginning, a fan of your product, a fan of your brands. And just excited to have this episode be shared on my platform and to get the opportunity to just, you know, pick your brain a little bit and get a little bit of the inspiration behind the magic that is Kiva Confections and everything else that you guys have brought to market so far. So any final words you want to share with the audience? Let's see. Yeah, you know what? I would just love to give a special shout out and thank you to the Kiva team and everybody on the team. You know, it's cannabis is super hard. And it's a rough time of year. It's just, there's a lot of stuff and, you know, post-COVID environment. So I just want to take a second to, you know, show some gratitude to the people that work at Kiva because it is a dedicated, passionate group of people and they kick ass and they show up to work every day with a smile on their face and just that is everything. And the the company wouldn't exist. We wouldn't be here without our team. And so just a, a little love for the Kiva crew. Absolutely. It's always important to give thanks and gratitude, especially for the people who help bring your dreams and products to reality. So I extra add gratitude towards your team. And thank you again for the time being on the podcast, Christy. Thank you for having me. Love this episode of To Be Blunt? Be sure to visit theshadatarabi.com slash to be blunt for more ways to connect. New episodes come out on Mondays. And for more behind the scenes, follow along on Instagram at theshadatarabi.com.